I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Transition down here on Earth to our feed this morning, which starts with Apple and some expected holdups in the supply chain. Bloomberg reporting that Apple could cut its iPhone 13 production targets by as much as 10 million units this year due to chip shortages. Apple falling pre-market with shares inching toward correction territory. You see it there down about one and a third percent nearly. It's down more than nine percent from its September 7th record high. Two of Apple's suppliers, Broadcom and Texas Instruments, both down this morning as well as they struggle to deliver chips for the iPhone. Apple previously forecast there would be an impact in the coming quarter. So it's unclear if this is a new production issue or just the same issues that tech companies have been warning about for months. Julia, um, you know, over the years, when I've had a chance to speak with Tim Cook about this sort of thing, he has tended to say, look, you don't have the insight into our supply chain that Apple does. And so (laughs) trying to draw too much of a conclusion from one headline or one piece of the supply chain is a fool's errand. And, you know, we should note Apple did, of course, warn that there would be tight supply. We don't know how much inventory they've built up. So it's tough to read too much into this if you're an investor. Well, we don't want to read too much into this, but this could be a moment, John, where we see that this is the company, Apple, that has been able to hold off having any real impact from these broader chip shortages that we've seen impact not just the tech industry, but so many different industries. And I think it's interesting to note that Morgan Stanley said that it's possible that if, if double Apple does have a feel an impact right now, that that could end up actually meaning that they're going to fare better than some of their rivals. That yes, they'll have an impact, but whoever their rivals are are going to feel a much bigger impact because Apple does have the scale and it does have all of these different things in place to be able to manage these issues. So could this be a situation where, yes, they feel the effects of a shortage, but they still end up gaining market share through this process, uh, Carl? Yeah, uh, it was uh, it was Katie Huberty of Morgan Stanley just a few days ago, John. We talked about it on the show, saying that she didn't think that supply crunch was going to be material uh, for Apple. And in fact, today she says... Um, any delay in production uh, just pushes iPhone sales into future quarters. In other words, demand isn't perishable, and any supply shortage should not materially impact valuation. And maybe that's why we did see at least shares of Apple itself trade pretty well pre-market. Yeah, and we can keep in mind, uh, you know, Dave Limp over at Amazon a couple of weeks ago gave us some pretty good insight into the planning process here. He talked about how they have a pretty good sense at Amazon of how demand for their devices develops over the course of the year. And in the pandemic, what they did was they launched their uh, sort of lower cost devices, higher demand earlier in the year so that they could space it out and get a feel for how that was going to go. What we don't know is what Apple would have done with this cycle had we not been in a pandemic and had they not faced shortages. Would they have updated the iPhone SE? Would they have configured their phones differently? Clearly, they're probably planning uh, for these launches based on the supply that they expect to have. So uh, we will see, uh, guys, whether uh, this works out in a way, uh, as Apple has projected, um, uh, that they can plan on. Meantime, JP Morgan earnings are are out. It's a beat. The stock is higher. We want to talk about the read through from the quarter for uh, the disruptors in the space, fintech that is, like Square. Uh, CEO Jamie Dimon highlighted consumer spending habits, saying, quote, in consumer and community banking, combined debit and credit card spend was up 26 percent and card payment rates have stabilized 
contributing to modest card loan growth. And joining us now for his picks within payments and what J.P. Morgan could mean for these stocks, uh, Wolf Research payments analyst Darren Peller. Darren, good to have you. Um, how much read-through is there here, and what are the most important metrics that, that you look at when you're considering the impact on the stocks you think are most important? Yeah, and thanks for having me. When you look at these data, I mean, they're really important because, for example, J.P. Morgan can represent anywhere from 15 to 20 percent of total cards outstanding in the U.S. So they are a big sample size, uh, really giving us a sense of what's happening as we head into earnings of Visa, MasterCard, Square, PayPal. Um, what we saw in the data was that it accelerated despite concerns out there about the Delta variant and stimulus waning. You really saw about a two, almost 200 basis point acceleration from last quarter to this quarter, especially when we compare it versus 2019, a more normal time frame relative to the you know kind of odd year we saw in 2020 with tough comps. So it just showed us that credit card further accelerated. Uh, it does give us a sense that the Visa data and the MasterCard data estimates out there are probably fair or conservative. And then for Square, it sets up pretty well for their volume data points we're about to see when they report in November. And we talk about fintech a lot. Uh, when we talk about fintech, we tend to talk about consumer. But I, I note that one of the focus names that you have with clients is Bill.com, which is very much an SMB-focused fintech company. And Square used to be that, too, before everybody started focusing so much on Cash App. Uh, how much of fintech growth and the sort of infrastructure uh, platforms that are being built, how much of that is contingent on uh, them really having the right kinds of solutions for small, medium business? Should that get more attention? Oh, my God, that's a huge trend. I mean, from our perspective, B2B payments in general uh, and really small business uh, investment is enormous right now. And we're seeing still record levels of new business formation uh, among SMBs in the United States, much higher than levels we saw pre-COVID. Uh, so there, any, any real software application or payments application that can, that can apply to that has been successful. Build.com is one of our top picks because we really see it being one of the best accounts payable software, which also combines the payments underneath it. And just keep in mind, guys, I mean, we have probably inning one out of, we're, we have years and years of expansion in B2B payments. When you think of there being $25 trillion of spend between businesses and only one or 2% of that done in, you know, outside of checks and legacy ACH. Darren, if you take a step back and look at the broader industry here, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how this is fintech's mass adoption event. The pandemic was responsible for a permanent yeah. acceleration into fintech. But looking at the incumbent companies versus the new challenger banks, how do you see that playing out? I know you're also bullish on Visa, Visa and MasterCard, as well as some of these newer companies. Yeah, look, we absolutely still we continue to see there being about a third of total app downloads uh, of financial services apps being on the neo banks, the digital banks that we're seeing. And I know J.P. Morgan talked about, you know, really moving forward internationally with a digital initiative. But even the legacy banks know that if they're going to compete, it has to be on the digital format. But a third of total downloads up from really what was only single digit percentages versus the banks a few years ago. And so the chimes of the world, the borrows. And when you include Square and Venmo in those numbers, Two-thirds of total downloads are actually on neobanks. We absolutely think that trend is here to stay and that consumers have shifted to using digital and away from the branch banking. Well, we're going to continue to follow it. Uh, Darren Peller from Wolf Research, thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks for having us, guys. 
Still to come this morning, Apple Watch Series 7 reviews are out. We got the breakdown on that. Plus, uh, keep your eye on shares of Amazon since Andy Jassy took over as CEO down since early July. We'll have a lot more on Jassy's first 100 days in the chair as Tech Check comes back. Bottom of the hour. Let's get a reset here with a news update. And Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Oh, good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Rising food and energy prices driving consumer inflation back to a 13-year high. The CPI index is up 5.4% over the last year. In September, prices were up four-tenths of a percent. But excluding food and energy, September inflation was just 2%. Still, consumer inflation has risen faster than average hourly pay since last September. Stocks of the major banks trading lower. J.P. Morgan, the first of them to report quarterly results. Profits were well ahead of forecast, but that was largely due to a big reserve release. Delta also falling despite a big earnings beat. The airline says that rising fuel prices will drive the company to a moderate loss in the fourth quarter. The union representing film and TV crews says that it will begin a nationwide strike on Monday unless a new labor deal is reached. The union's 60,000 members want better pay and safer working conditions. And in San Francisco, Walgreens says that it is closing five more of its stores due to rampant organized shoplifting. The drugstore chain says that theft levels at those locations are five times the company's national average. And that's despite large increases in security. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks. And as we've been watching Jeff Bezos in West Texas, his chosen replacement at Amazon is marking 100 days as CEO. Andy Jassy stepped into the role after growing and running Amazon's cloud business, AWS. Now analysts on the street are looking at new near-term challenges and long-term opportunities for Amazon as the company gears up for this holiday quarter. Baird, Bank of America, and Evercore flagging supply chain and labor concerns as a short-term margin risk, but also pointing out that Amazon's logistics operation has an advantage over others. And that's in addition to antitrust scrutiny and competition in the cloud, as well as general marketplace disruption as Shopify and other direct-to-consumer platform tools gain traction with sellers. Um, Shares are down nearly 7% since Jassy officially became CEO, kind of reflecting what's been happening in the market overall. But Amazon and Jassy have had some recent successes as well, growing studio offerings, pushing into gaming with uh, New World. That's a hit for gaming, which Amazon kind of needed, and expanding the Prime Air Logistics Network. Uh, and then there's the advertising business, Julia, which is big, uh, quite big, and growing into a force in the industry. Yeah, advertising business, one I think we don't talk about enough. It's, you know, Amazon is not only third behind Facebook and Google, but also gaining market share very quickly. But, John, I think it's so interesting right now, if you look at the particular challenges facing Amazon, as we talk about all the issues at the ports, this is a holiday season unlike no other. It's one in which people have gotten used to being able to get things instantaneously, you know, virtually instantaneously um, as people shift more to e-commerce during the pandemic. And there is this risk that people are going to be really disappointed um, with all of these delays and the fact that two-day Amazon free shipping may just not exist for a lot of products that people would want to get really quickly. Yeah, true. But Carl, uh, I I also look at this and think that port issue, 
that's everybody's problem. Uh, and Amazon, given the uh, increase in Amazon Air, given the delivery network that it has, given the signal that it has from consumers and what they're searching for even now, they know what they need and perhaps have better data and intelligence than others. So while this is an issue for everybody, we're just talking about Apple having its own uh, challenges, which it had warned about in supply chain. Amazon's got data and a logistics network, and that helps. Yep, and not all logistics clients are created equal. Uh, we talk about having leverage on the chain all the time, although, uh, Julia, I would point out that Baird uh, did cut their margin estimates uh, for Amazon on these higher input costs on labor, logistics, uh, technology, infrastructure. Uh, they say... Uh, there may be enough macro headwinds uh, to continue holding back shares in the near term, uh, but long term and medium term, they would be buyers on weakness. Yeah, a lot of a lot of bullishness for the long term for Amazon. And yes, you're right, John. It's true. Amazon has more resources than anyone to figure out these problems. But I would also say when you order something from Etsy, you don't expect to get it in two days. The expectations <laughs> are also a lot higher near term for Amazon. And a lot more tech check is straight ahead, so stay with us. Apple's down about one and a half percent. We've talked about the supply chain worries already this hour. Uh, what is the read through, though, for some of the suppliers? Josh Lipton watching that. Hey, Josh. Carl, we do have that new report on Apple saying that iPhone production could be cut by 10 million units because of those component shortages. Now, some analysts do say they take these stories with a grain of salt, given the size, scope and complexity of Apple's supply chain. But if it is true, where could investors potentially see some ripple effects? Joe Colina at Wedbush says there are 38 companies with 20 percent or more revenues coming from Apple. He highlights some of those names like Cirrus Logic, which is about 20 percent off its January high already. Skyward Works, which Bayer just downgraded to neutral, by the way, also 20% off its high, basically flat now on the year. Qualcomm, which announced that $10 billion share buyback program, but it has been rough there, down about 20% in 2021 on pace for its third straight monthly decline. Its worst losing streak, by the way, since March 2020. As well as Broadcom, that one is up about 10% this year, just slightly underperforming the SMH. And Corvo, 20% off its high, down about 5% now this year. Julia, back to you. Thanks, Josh. Let's stick with Apple. Apple Watch reviews are out this morning. We also got the news that Apple will be holding yet another event entitled Unleashed on Monday, where new MacBook models are expected to be the star of the show. Let's bring in John Gruber of the Daring Fireball Tech blog. John, thanks for joining us. Before we talk about the new watch or what to expect next week, first, tell us what you expect in terms of these supply chain issues. How much do you think Apple's prepared for them and how much do you think they're really going to be impacted? Uh, I think they're prepared, but I, I just did a spot check before this morning after publishing my, my watch review. And the new Series 7 watches, if you order uh, this, the aluminum models now, the, the delivery date is already today out in November. November 19 to 29, and like the titanium model, which is $800, uh, November 29th to December 6th already. So I, 
that's going to make it tight for the holiday quarter. I mean, for people who are looking to get these for Christmas and the other holidays, uh, it is already tight. And I don't know about you, but for me, before Halloween, I'm not thinking about buying Christmas gifts for people. But if you're thinking about buying an Apple Watch, you better order soon. Yeah, that's a little concerning. I hadn't started even thinking about holiday shopping yet, uh, John. But what about the, the phones in particular that is such an essential piece of the holiday equation for Apple? It, it seems like the phones are in better supply. I know that there's the news today that they've cut the production, and it seems like that's just based on uh, what they can make as opposed to demand. But iPhone 13, the shipping date right now is October 25th to 28th. 13 Pro, November 11th to 18th. So about a month out if you want an iPhone 13 Pro, right? And you ordered right now today. So that's that's obviously not what they want. Uh, but I don't know what, you know, I, I if anybody can manage it, it's Apple and Tim Cook and, and their supply chain. But it is, uh, it's very different than, than any year I can remember. Uh, John, I wonder what you make of some of the arguments from the street today. And that is, all right, uh, for a consumer uh, who wanted it in time for the holiday, that might be troublesome. But in, in the medium term, uh, the demand doesn't necessarily go away. Uh, in the words of Morgan Stanley, it's not yeah. perishable and any supply shortage uh, shouldn't impact valuation. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I, maybe the watch in particular might be a little bit more holiday gift sensitive. But for phones, people who need a phone, if they need to wait, they will, they'll wait. And if they get it in January instead of December, they're going to do it. Um, so I, I wouldn't be, I'm not as concerned long-term, you know, if any, for the phone. The watch, it's a little bit trickier, especially because they don't sell so many varieties. They really, right now, with the new lineup, only sell the new Series 7 watch, the Apple Watch SE, and the Series 3 watch. Uh, so if you want a new one, you're, you're really looking at a tight supply chain. John, let's talk about this Unleashed event coming up. I think it's interesting, not necessarily for the product itself, because it's probably a high-end laptop that's not going to be major... Uh, you know, top line growth, though the margins are probably pretty nice. But what chip we get inside it? Is it called an M1X? And does it extend Apple's story about performance and battery life in this heterogeneous computing era um, that maybe Intel and AMD are going to have to react to? With the name, I, I don't put any stock into the rumors that it'll be called the M1X. It might be, but as far as I know, nobody had the M1 name a year ago. The, these Mac chips, Apple seems to be keep, able to keep under wraps much tighter than they can iPhone supplies, just because the quantities are so much lower. So who knows what it's going to be called? But I sort of feel like calling it the M1X would imply a subtle improvement over last year's M1s, whereas the, the machines that Mac users are waiting for, these truly professional Mac, MacBook Pros and maybe bigger iMacs that are meant for pros. Um, it, and I, I also don't like to read too much into Apple's little hints with their invitations, but calling this one Unleashed seems to me to suggest that they are going to wow the industry with the performance of these chips. So uh, I'd worry less about the name. Let's hear what Apple wants to call it. But I, I expect very, very impressive performance that is going to put it even more pressure on Intel and AMD. Huh. 
Well, John, we always try to read something into those invitations, and we'll be watching that event very of course closely. We do. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Looks like Thanks going into hyperdrive, which is appropriate for today's space travel. After the break, the money ball's back. Billy Bean is taking SeatGeek public. That's next. A gut check on Netflix right now trading about 3% off its all-time high. Netflix making it official. Squid Game is now its biggest ever series at launch. 111 million viewers have tuned in during the first 17 days, making the show Netflix's first to surpass 100 million in that time period. And then Netflix announcing a book club, this in partnership with Starbucks. Members will be notified whenever Netflix announces its next screen adaptation. And coming off of yesterday's announcement of a merchandise agreement with Walmart, it's clear that Netflix is, one, working to extend the reach of its brands off of its platform and build the kind of flywheel that has made Disney so profitable. And two, it's going where the eyeballs are. Walmarts, Starbucks, giant multinational platforms, it's all about scale. And as you can see with Squid Game, Netflix has its own scale that it can offer in return. Yeah, uh, and crypto getting some help from Silicon Valley in Washington. Uh, Elon Moy explains. Elon? Well, John, the world's biggest crypto fund is urging Washington to develop a national strategy for the next generation of the Internet. And, of course, A16Z has some ideas for what that should look like. Now, top executives, including Katie Hahn and COO Anthony Albanese, are meeting with officials at the White House, on Capitol Hill, and at government agencies this week. The agenda includes advocating for risk-based regulation. For example, NFTs probably don't need the same amount of scrutiny as stable coins. And the SEC or any of the existing agencies may not be right for the job. We think it's going to be important to recognize the great diversity of use cases and applications in this space, uh, understand that uh, this technology is not a monolith, and do what we can to get regulation that is fit for purpose for 21st century technologies. A16Z also wants Washington to create a regulatory sandbox for emerging technologies, update disclosure requirements, and get better guidance on tax rules. There are likely few areas that will be more consequential in determining the long-term success of a country in the 21st century than the quality of its digital infrastructure. And in the United States right now, we're not only losing this race, but it's unclear that many of our policymakers even recognize that there's a competition underway. Now, remember, the battle this summer over IRS reporting requirements galvanized the industry into action. And now A16Z says it's in this fight for the long haul. Guys. All right, Elon, thank you. And now a reminder, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Tech Check podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. And we'll be back in just a moment. Oakland A's executive Billy Bean is known for finding value in baseball, but can he do the same in the market? Bean's SPAC Red Ball Acquisition Corp. announcing today will take SeatGeek public, valuing the company uh, north of a billion dollars. Joining us today, SeatGeek's co-founder and CEO, Jack Gretzinger. Jack, welcome back. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, we know about Billy's uh, adherence to data and following him or following the data wherever it leads. Uh, what do you think it says right now about uh, the prospect for live events and the way in which technology plays into that business model? Yeah, you know, we've been surprised by just how quickly the live entertainment market is coming back post-COVID. And particularly when you look forward to 2022, next year, it's going to be just a blockbuster year for live entertainment. There's a ton of pent-up supply and demand. We see Geek came into the uh, pandemic growing at about 70% annually, um, had been for a while, have continued to gain share uh, over the course of the last 18 months. So you combine that with the market itself growing and sort of natural tailwinds we have to our business. And I think we're going to be able to build something very, very valuable. What do you say to investors who are like, yeah, we get that you're making up for lost time uh, as the pandemic took live events? I mean, there was a time where we wondered if we would ever go to a live event again. Uh, but, but where is structural growth beyond making up for the dislocation? Are there new categories or just new sh sheer volume events or, or higher prices? Yeah, you know, we, I mean, setting, stepping back, we started SeatGeek because on one hand, I believe live events are these incredible, magical, life-affirming experiences. And yet, historically, the process of buying tickets, actually going to them, has been really painful. It's like dealing with your cable company. So Seeky uh, ultimately solves that. We make it incredibly simple uh, so that fans can ultimately do more stuff, do that spontaneously. Uh, we have a feature called Swaps that allows fans to return tickets so that if they're worried about something getting rescheduled, they can return tickets back to Seeky. Um, and importantly, we're also vertically integrated back to many venues and major teams across the U.S. and abroad, such that uh, we're providing software to teams and venues that allow them to run their businesses. And that vertical integration is really important but because... Jack, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, Jack, it's just that the ticketing industry is notoriously complicated by the fact that Ticketmaster is a giant. It has exclusive arrangements with a number of these large venues, if not the vast majority of them. And then you also have other players, such as StubHub. How do you see all of this playing into the competitive landscape? And where do you hope to gain market share? Yeah, really, that's what I was just talking about, where you know, Ticketmaster has had those relationships historically. We're very focused on building the best technology possible. And over the past few years, we've seen many major venues switch to SeatGeek. We're honored to be working with the Dallas Cowboys, the Brooklyn Nets, the Cleveland Cavs, New Orleans Saints, many other major venues and teams. They're making that choice because they see that SeatGeek software is incredibly powerful because it makes their fans much happier and it allows them to run their business better. So it's a case of providing the best technology on earth and teams and venues switching and making choices as a result. And do you think there's more upside for you in converting more venues from Ticketmaster to your platform or is it in the secondary market, which there's always a lot of action at, you know, in when it comes to ticketing? We're not focused on converting from a specific competitor, but we are absolutely focused on signing many more enterprise clients. We've had tremendous growth in that over the last few years. We signed a few more major ones during COVID, and that's absolutely something we plan to do um, over the next few years. It's going to be further accelerated by this transaction and by bringing Redbird into the fold. Redbird is a, uh, a firm that's got a long track record in sports and entertainment work with a bunch of teams, and they're going to only help us accelerate that. Finally, uh, Jack, would you say music or sports is going to be the more high-powered growth category? I think what you'll see, you've seen sports recover more quickly this year 
than music. And that's just because it takes longer to plan a tour. Music is going to have a bonanza next year. We've already talked to many of our venues and promoters who are saying they've already seen historical records double for 2022. Obviously, we're not even there yet. There's a ton of artists that have been waiting to tour that they rely on. Uh, they rely on touring for their income. They just haven't been able to. So I think you'll see both categories do really, really well. Sports is already far along in that recovery. Music is in for a really big rocket ship over the next year. Wow. <laughs> we, we can't wait for that part. Uh, Jack, uh, congratulations. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again uh, as this process moves forward. But uh, good to have you with us. Thank. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Julia. One more thing, and that's the rights to that highly coveted Monday night wildcard game. Disney and ESPN getting the deal done for the next five years. It's the newest addition to this year's NFL playoff schedule. So that weekend is two games, Saturday, three on Sunday, and now one on Monday for the first time ever. Guys, we may talk a lot about Squid Game and the shift to streaming, but John, the value of live sports continue to be the most important thing for television. Yeah, uh, valuable and NFL. Carl still looking for a partner in technology. I remember uh, Goodell told us that when Julia brought him to us. Uh, yeah, and in terms of ratings, I think through game four, if I'm not mistaken, guys, uh, NFL ratings up a high double digits, I think 17%. So it's one of the best years in several seasons. What a morning between the markets and Blue Origin. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.